0: Hello and welcome to our podcast Breaking Down Mental Health with myself social worker Saima Khan nurse practitioner Dr. Christina Swiner and child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Heidi Burns. Today we are joined by Renee Cassidy and Susan Burgess to discuss the integration of basic coping skills at the bedside. We will particularly focus on skills that any provider
1: can use in those moments of distress to support their patients. Susan Burgess is an advanced practice nurse on the Psychiatric Behavioral Consultation Liaison Service. She is experienced in med-surg and hematology oncology nursing. Most recently, she has been working in psychiatry and behavioral health for over 11 years. Her areas of interest include psychosis, suicidality, coping, and teaching about why maladaptive behaviors can happen, what may help, and how distress impacts us all. Renee Cassidy is the Clinical Care Coordinator for Behavioral Health
2: Nursing in CS Mott Children's Hospital. Her role is to support nursing when working with behaviorally challenging patients.
0: Let's jump right in and talk a little bit about why maladaptive behaviors happen and what are coping skills.
3: So maladaptive behavior happens really for a variety of reasons. We know behavior is communication. So when we see or experience dysregulated behavior, we need to think about what the individual is trying to communicate. In our hospital and outside, patients and families are really expressing that they are uncomfortable in some way. Their behavior is communication. They're either physically, mentally, or emotionally having a tough time. So at times as humans, we can't even verbalize our own feelings. And so if we're able to sit with a patient or sit with a family and help them sort that out and help them identify it and name it, sometimes that's really helpful at the onset of behavioral management. We know something's off. They can feel something's off, but they're just not sure and they're just not feeling safe. So sometimes a patient or family might be feeling anxious or pain. Often in my consults, they're not feeling communicated with. They're scared. They don't feel seen and heard. Sometimes they're tired or frustrated. They're worried about home, school, or work. And sometimes they're just generally feeling a loss of control. Most times I find the behavior is rooted in a combination of factors, which can simply add to the complexity of their feelings, as well as our response to those behaviors. Patients and families are really going through a lot And that's why we see all this maladaptive behavior.
4: I think maladaptive behaviors um, can be formed um, working with children, as I do mostly, um, in childhood, sometimes in validating environments where expressing how you feel or what you need may not be uh, validated or reinforced or provided for. Uh, Sometimes they learn to negative attention seek or that tantruming or being aggressive gets the attention and ultimately gets their needs met. So that's um, a bigger picture of how some maladaptive behaviors can be formed with children. And also I agree with Susan that communication and behavior is almost always some sort of communication where maybe it's pain, maybe it's fear, maybe they need their parent or they don't Feel secure or safe. That's something that they're trying to communicate. And also, I do agree as well that how we respond to those behaviors, if sometimes our response can even escalate maladaptive behaviors. So, if we come across as scared ourselves or we respond with a highly reactive response to their behavior, we can exacerbate it. I think when we come with a, in with a caring and compassionate, lowering our tone, destimulating the environment, it, you know, it can also contribute to calming them down.
2: Now, Renee and Susan, we just talked a little bit about what maladaptive is, and we see that a lot in the hospital as we meet people at their, their weakest moment. Can, Renee, can you just give us a
4: little bit of a definition of what a coping skill is? So a coping skill can be, I can see it as either being positive or negative. So um, lots of uh, people form negative coping skills. Like um, we've talked about negative attention seeking or as adults, you know, substance use or strange manipulative behaviors. Um, So those are, believe it or not, our coping skills because we use those negative skills to get our needs met. And in a way, it can be even a survival skill. But the coping skills that we're all gathered together here for are those positive coping skills that help us to return to baseline, to calm us down, to be able to move forward, to be able to receive information. And so a positive coping skill... Sometimes it helps more in the long run. So if we take care of ourselves, if we're able to self-regulate a little bit, those positive coping skills, have they may not give us immediate relief like a negative coping skill might, but it does give us better long-term results. Susan, is there anything you'd like to add about coping skills
0: and why they're important for us in the hospital setting?
3: Yeah, I totally agree with what Renee said when she said coping skills are survival skills. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to survive those immediate situations or long-term situations, right? We're trying to do the best that we can. And sometimes they do go negative, and, and hopefully we can share and teach and encourage those positive things too. In the hospital, we see such a variety of coping skills. And I think sometimes people just need the validation, like Renee said too, and kind of just um, reinforce to what the right track is, what How can we help an individual differently? How can we help them identify their own coping skills? Because sometimes in those acute moments, they can't even identify their own.
1: Thank you, Susan and Renee. I think the complexity of emotions that you mentioned that lead to these maladaptive behaviors highlights how important it is to have people like you both who are helping us understand how to create adaptive coping skills um, for our patients, because it can be quite a a difficult environment when people are under significant stress. And we're also trying to treat them um, and and help motivate them with their care. So Renee, you're very experienced at teaching children and adolescents different coping skills. Do you think you could walk us through a few coping skills that providers could teach a patient or a family in the moment, uh, no matter what kind of
4: Setting that they're in. Well, I would start with maybe younger children, where we really need that parent to utilize their relationship with their child to calm them. So I think being perceptive about the relationship with that parent and child, if the child is able to receive comfort by hugs, touch, so, you know, th- soothing reassurance, that we can encourage the parent to provide those, because most often a younger child's going to want their parent or caregiver before they're gonna want our comfort. And also being in tune, if you're working with autistic children or children who have a trauma history, that they may not be comforted by touch or hugs. They may need space. And so with younger children, I think that would be my go-to coping for when they are scared or becoming agitated. And for older kids, my go-to coping skill is always using your five senses, to, because tr- usually they're upset because they're fearful of something that's going to happen in the future, or they're upset from an experience they've had in the past that they're thinking about. And so if we can get them to be present by just focusing on what's going on immediately around them And sometimes I'll even ask a kid to name it out loud. Tell me five things you can see in this room maybe that you haven't noticed before. Tell me four things that you hear. Listen carefully. You can hear things out in the hall. And just being present with their senses and breaking it down all the way to feeling and smelling and even paying attention to the taste in your mouth. It brings them into the present and um, it kind of kicks in that parasympathetic Response where you know you're because they're experiencing usually a fight or flight that's starting to get them agitated and by focusing on their five senses usually those thoughts are tampered down so they're not their breathing slows down because they don't have those those thoughts that are kind of stirring up the, that that agitation or that fear or so being in the present moment is just accepting what's going on right now and like I said it, it just works.
0: Renee, I really love that coping skill, the five senses. Do you think you could finish walking
4: us through it of, you know, five things you see, four things you hear? Yeah. So I'll have them name, name out loud. Or if I can tell that they really are engaging, sometimes kids, will their mind will wander. You start walking them through the five senses. And, and I'll go step by step just to simplify. So I'll say, find fi- five things you can see in the room. Four things that you can hear, maybe in the room or outside the room. Uh, Three things you can feel. Pay attention to yourself sitting in the bed. How does that blanket feel? Are you experiencing any pain? And then I'll remind them, don't judge it. Just acknowledge the presence of the things. You don't have to judge them as good or bad. Just acknowledge that they're there. So three things that you feel. And then two things that you smell—they can smell their hair, their hands, their clothes, or maybe there's um, a scent on their bedside table of something. And then just paying attention to the taste in your mouth. What 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 is the taste in your mouth? And so, yeah, just that is the we call it mindfulness. Five senses: five, four, three, two, one.
2: Awesome. Thank you, Renee. Something that I do with my patients as well is a very similar technique. But as you know, we often meet patients in very distressing situations in the hospital. And, you know, looking around the room, it can almost be more distressing to them. And if I notice that with a patient, then I say, okay, Take a deep breath. Let's, you know, focus on what are five things we wish we were seeing right now. Let's, you know, think about that calm place we are at. Name five things in that place. Or same thing with, you know, smells. It can be particularly difficult in a hospital setting. What are two smells that you really like? Like, is it the baking of chocolate chip cookies? Let's think about that for a second. Is it lavender? Is it something else that kind of brings you peace? Because sometimes being in that that ER room on that stressor where there's just monitors around is just too much for that patient. And what I'm hearing from you, Renee, is really bringing this patient back to the moment as Uh, instead of letting them just run wild with whatever thoughts may be going on. And, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the real purpose of that is to allow them to then focus on what's really happening in the situation and not all those what ifs.
4: Yes. And I, I like that you mentioned about the thoughts um because it's the racing thoughts that get the heart rate up and the breathing up and then the the adrenaline starts pumping and then it's just really hard to control yourself when you when you get that worked up and so hopefully you can get them in a place where they're able to engage and do and practice that and the imagery too even if like some people are overstimulated by what's actually in the room and so the using the imagery in your mind is also especially of things that, that are pleasant to them, I think is a great idea.
2: Thank you. Now, Susan, you've also worked extensively with patients and families teaching different skills. Could you share
3: another skill with our audience? Sure. Yeah. I love what you guys are talking about, the imagery. There was an exercise we used to do in nursing school. Our professor would walk us through, and it was that calm, happy place, right, in the midst of midterms or finals, and mine was always the beach. But you said chocolate chip cookies as a smell, and I was like, yes, I love that one too. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, so mine also is uh, about engaging that parasympathetic nervous nervous system. And deep breathing is something we can do anywhere, whenever we need it. I was doing it on the way in here this morning. <laughs> so it's it's worthy. And it can be, you know, across the age span, right? Maybe even three, two, three years old and up can do these deep breathing exercises, maybe a modified version, but certainly they, they can partake. So we know that deep breathing is really quite helpful in calming our mind and body. So, there are lots of physiological benefits. With these techniques, we can engage our nervous system in times of stress and regulate our body back to calm. So, we're lowering our heart rate, regulating our blood pressure, as well as promoting muscle relaxation and even decreasing the release of cortisol. So, uh, lots of good benefits here. So, the technique I'm going to describe is the 478 breathing. Um, It was developed by an integrative medicine physician named Dr. Andrew Weil. So he has for decades studied all different kinds of calming techniques and really feels this one is a great effective way to reduce and manage anxiety and stress. I use it often with patients. Like I said, I use it myself. My children will say, uh oh, she's deep breathing. (laughs) We were um, (laughs) on vacation and and they saw that I was a little nervous and I was doing it. So, So this works. So the action of the exercise is to close your mouth and inhale really deeply through your nose to the count of four. Then you hold that breath to the count of seven. And then after that, you audibly exhale through parted lips and make that like that whoosh exhale sound. And that's a count of eight. So that'll be that one full cycle, the four, seven, eight. So there's a lot of science that says if we are exhaling longer than we are inhaling and holding, that's when we really engage that nervous system. So this is forcing us to concentrate on our mechanical steps of our breathing cadence. It promotes our body focus and that mindfulness that Renee was talking about, really present, releases tension, and then gets you to kind of truly exhale and hear those worries discharge. Thank you, Susan. And as you
2: mentioned, deep breathing is for across the age span. And primarily working in pediatrics, we adapt this skill based on the age of the patient. And so for my little toddlers, it's, you know, breaking out those bubbles and having them take those deep breaths and blowing those bubbles. Or my son's favorite is um, picking a color to blow and pretending that you're expelling that. Color out of your mouth, and he thinks it's hilarious, but it kind of breaks that tension and allows him to then refocus his attention on the task at hand that has been so overwhelming for him. Um, but thank you. Do either of you guys
4: have another skill that we could teach our audience and kind of add to their toolbox? Just destimulating an environment is a big thing. So that's something as healthcare providers that we can do. We can turn down the lights, we can turn off the TV, we can reduce the number of people in the room. We can tidy the room. I mean, just that. Get rid of some stuff, you know? Um, I think just destimulating the environment is super helpful. And maybe in in the same hand we are um modeling that for the parent, you know, that hey, if we just kind of not talk so much, turn it down, that's modeling a coping skill f- for their family. Um, so I think that can be really helpful. And then again, working with children, I worked with a an older child that he was just so restless, pain and fear. And uh, I said, let's try tucking him in bed and really tucking him in bed like you would swaddle a baby. And it was actually helpful. So and that within com- combination with some medication, but I feel sometimes that just that secure feeling sometimes is helpful with children, especially if they're not particularly fond of being hugged or held in that way. it makes them feel more confined or restricted and they resist that kind of comfort sometimes swaddling or or weighted blankets or tucking them in really good can help them feel more secure and
3: I totally agree. The tactile stuff is so important. I've had a lot of really good luck with warm showers with patients in the hospital. Um, the sound of the water, the feel of the water, the warmth sometimes, the relaxation, the alone time, all of those things seem to really help. You know, a shower is not going to fix everything, but sometimes it's a nice intervention to just give them a moment to kind of decompress and, and have some Good deep breaths in a warm environment. And water is magical sometimes, right? We we get a lot of good benefit from water.
4: Yeah. And those things in the hospital, if you're inpatient, you can you have those warm blankets. And we have those inhalers and lotions that are scented with peppermint and citrus and lavender, I think. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. There and ginger, you know, that can really relieve nausea and anxiety and can utilize those tools too. Those sound like some great tips and tools that are, you know,
0: nurses, physicians, anyone can use Bedside to help support someone that's going through something distressing, um, and really in any setting. So I just thank you again for sharing all those wonderful skills that staff can use at the Bedside. Are there places that staff can access more information
3: about easy to learn coping skills? There's several apps. Renee and I have talked about a few in the past. I know um, you suggest Insight Timer often, I think, to your patients, right? and headspace and headspace yeah and there's also uh, talkspace there's the app calm there's mood mission Happify. there's a lot of really good ones that can kind of help direct us and just give us those pauses and you know some strategy in those tough moments apps like
4: headspace are great for meditation they have really short little breathing exercises that are meditations that are three to five minutes long and sometimes when people are trying to meditate, their mind will wander to whatever they're worried about or perseverating on, and they say meditation doesn't work for me. Well, Headspace will help guide you right back into your breathing exercise and teach you not to judge yourself or to give up, but just to gently guide yourself back and to get you through uh, long enough to actually feel the benefits of, of meditation and deep breathing. I think you bring up
3: some really good points there, Renee. To give ourselves grace, right, and not judge ourselves in those moments because they're really tough and we're all human and we react sometimes and have a struggle. Um, And I think, too, when you bring up the time commitment, often patients, families, staff, They think that this has to be a huge time investment, and really a couple minutes can help reset us. I often take the elevator down, do a lap around the courtyard, and go back up, and that's just enough to get outside, get some fresh air, take a two-minute pause, and get back on track. So thank you for bringing up both of those points.
1: As pediatric providers, we're rarely just providing support to patients, but often we need to support families as a whole. How do we support families that are dealing with high levels of stress?
3: So one thing we can do is validate families, their feelings, and their experiences. We don't need to even agree with how the family member is behaving, coping, or speaking in order to validate them. We as humans often need to feel seen and heard as individuals, right? We all need this. So validating the family is quite beneficial as it reinforces that we hear them, we're showing empathy for what is can be challenging for them, what's fear-provoking, These are really tough healthcare situations sometimes, and so we have a lot that we can do to help them out. We can also encourage families to take a break and let them take good care of themselves so they can take good care of their loved one. They need their basics too. So despite their child or loved one's hospitalization, They need rest, nutrition, hydration, activity, all of these kind of baseline things that all of us need that sometimes the caregivers forget about or ignore or don't give enough value to, right, because they're not the patient in the bed. So empowering the family, patient, parent, or I'm sorry, parent or spouse to take a moment, take a lap around the courtyard, go outside, get a coffee, go get a sandwich even, Sometimes the families need to feel supported and need to be given this different kind of permission.
2: Thank you for sharing that, Susan. And now, Renee, you do a lot of work with patients and families on our peds side of things, and we have seen lots of families respond differently to stress. How do you help families see how their behaviors are potentially impacting their
4: child? Well, first, you have to build a little bit of rapport and come in and show that you have compassion and empathy for their situation and make sure that you have earned their trust in order to give them the recommendations that they probably need to hear, whether they're ready to and you have to kind of gauge whether they're ready to receive any guidance or not. But sometimes, when kids are not feeling good, they might not behave well. Uh, they might not obey. Uh, they might do a lot of whining and tantruming, and and that can grind on a parent's patience. And not you know sometimes not only are their ch- is their child physically ill, but then their behavior because they're ill is making that parent more impatient. And we don't know people's history. I mean. Maybe that parent has a trauma history themselves. Um, And so being gentle and showing them grace uh, for their situation and not making too many assumptions is really important, which is hard. I personally have gone into situations where a parent's behavior is exacerbating their child's behavior because it's a cycle of agitation and aggression, you know, so they feed off of each other's energy. And if you can build a rapport enough to guide that parent's understanding of what's happening, that, you know, if you can soothe your child, then that child will not get on your nerves like <laughs> like, like, what is happening, you know. So kind of helping them see. And like Susan said, encouraging breaks. And sometimes you may have to be firm about it you might have to say i need you to leave right now you know and and be kind but but firm and ultimately i hate to have to to go here but this is what we face sometimes is sometimes you have to call security you know if if it gets to that point where a parent is in the hallway yelling profanity at the nurses or and their child's in the you know standing in the in the doorway of the room crying it's just you just have to make it stop and some, sometimes a firm approach is necessary, but we don't have to go there very often. Most of the time, showing that you care and that you understand will de-escalate a situation. And we have other r- resources too, like psychology. We can get them involved. Sometimes they're helpful in helping that parent understand what's going on with their kid. Maybe their kid has, is on the autism spectrum and they haven't figured that out yet, and their expectations of their kid's behavior is unrealistic. You know, so there's all kinds of situations.
3: And I find if we can help them reframe
4: it, it sometimes helps too, right? So if we maybe say to the
3: parent or the family member, can you appreciate that when you go in really upset and nervous and worried and raising your voice— that translates to the patient and they feel it too. And sometimes they're not aware that that stuff transfers so easily, right? We do it as staff sometimes as well. We don't realize all of our stuff that we're carrying in the room. And I think if we help the patient or rather the parent or family reframe that, then
4: sometimes they can see the impact to the patient. Yeah. I love the way that you frame that in a question because I I think approaching a parent with a question to help them to perceive things in a different way is really a useful tool because when you come at them often as a, if they know you're a mental health provider a lot of people have a lot of stigma in their perception with mental health and they automatically feel judged and analyzed and so if you can come at them with you're the expert what do you think is going on here and what you know do you think what just happened is affecting them or I love that's a really good point. It's it's presenting things as a question, not as I'm I'm the know all of what's happening here.
0: We want to thank both of you for joining us today. Any final thoughts or words
3: of advice for our audience? You know, I do have a couple things actually. So on the U of mhealth dot org website, there's an entire page length of Uh, lists of positive and negative coping strategies. And there's actually also this quiz where you can take the quiz, learn more about how you are coping, and then ways to incorporate more positive coping into your routine. So I think that's really good for families to check out. And the other thing I think that I would include is just really trying to encourage individuals uh, to use these positive coping techniques in everyday life. This doesn't have to be within acute care hospitalization. This can be anytime. This can be in the car, at home, at the dinner table. If you find yourself using these positive coping skills and incorporating them and you're still feeling distressed and overwhelmed, please let someone know. I tell patients, family, staff, I can't help you with the things I don't know about. So please, there's help available. There's, you know, further intervention. If these positive coping skills kind of incorporated into your your routine isn't enough for you, that's okay. Please seek out anything you yourself feel um, you need to calm and reduce your
4: stress. If we just begin by thinking of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and think of those bottom things on the rung to make sure those things are being met, food, water, sleep, and have we addressed pain, things like that. That's not just for the patients and families, but us as healthcare professionals. If if we are coping well, then we will have the resilience to help our patients and families cope well. And so... I just want to remind everyone to kind of think about those basic needs. I think we skip on to these higher, more sophisticated things to help us cope. And sometimes it might be something like, man, I haven't had a good night's sleep in three nights. Or I haven't drink water since last night. I woke up and had big coffee, and that's all I've had. And <laughs> Or pain, you know, just are you having pain? Do you need some Tylenol? and And we can ask those things of ourselves, and we can ask those things of our parents and our patients. So... Sometimes I just think keeping it simple to start. And don't forget those simple things.
1: Susan and Renee, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today and sharing your expertise with our audience.
4: Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for inviting us.
2: Thank you to our audience for tuning in this week. Nurses, social workers, and physicians can claim CMEs and CEs at uofmhealth.org/breaking-down-mental-health. You're able to do this anytime within three years of the initial air date. We hope that you join us next week.